Hey everybody, it's Mark. Welcome or welcome back to the New Spring Church podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free New Spring app where you can access all of our recent message content. Actually, the app is the easiest way to share all this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around here at New Spring. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. Well, good morning, everybody. Have you been blessed by the service so far? I was telling the four o'clock crowd, I was here for run through and sound check, and it felt like the spirit of God was coming with great power. And you know, one of the things I hope, I think all new springers know this, but when you see these people on the stage, they're not performing, they're worshiping. I know their hearts and they are empowered by the Holy Spirit of God and they love you and they love God. And, and, you know, it goes throughout. I mean, you can look at a lot of the things that happen, like if you look at the sermon bumper video that you just watched, it can kind of feel like, wow, New Spring is into the cool factor. And we do want to do our very best. But I was in a meeting uh, with our creative team, and they had my sermon already, and they were working on a storyboard for the Easter video. And I was just looking at the sketches, the pencil sketches. And I looked at that, and I thought, well, that's from Revelation 1. That's from Revelation 19. And these are highly skilled technical people, and yet they're in the Word of God, and they're seeking God to know how to minister to you. And so I just appreciate so much the staff that God has put together here at New Spring. And I will say this, I know that when I look at the audience and I see that there are no seats left in South Auditorium, I know that there are many of you in North Auditorium, and I also know that parking places are not easy to find. So I hope you know, we appreciate, we never take it lightly that you spend part of your weekend with New Spring Church. And we realize we have to earn it every week. And we wanna be sure that we add value to your life. You know, of course, and I'm starting a brand new series today. About four or five years ago, I had a real sense from the Holy Spirit that there were two topics, looking at the times that we're living in, that I need to talk about a lot. And I realize these are topics that don't get talked about, especially in megachurches like New Spring, a lot. And there are some who do. But those two topics were prophecy, the coming of the Lord in the last days, and spiritual warfare. What's interesting about these two topics, of sharing this with Mary Alice yesterday morning at breakfast, is you really can't teach prophecy without teaching spiritual warfare. And you can't teach spiritual warfare without talking about how it's going to wind up. So I realized I, instead of coming up with a title for each one of the series, I realized that I needed an anthology title so that every time you saw a particular title, you would know that the series was on that topic. If you see a Worlds of Warfare series coming up, you know it's on spiritual warfare. And if you see Clash of Dynasties, you know that it's a, it's a, it's a series that's going to be about prophecy in the end times. Well, we're in a Clash of Dynasties series. And this is the third iteration of that series. The last time I brought a Clash of Dynasties series, I think it was 2019. So today I'm going to begin, and, and here's the thing that I need to let you know before I get started. This is strong meat. This is what the Bible, you know, the Bible talks about believers that are fed only on milk and believers that eat strong meat. And by that, it means food for adults, spiritual adults. I also need to let you know that this is not going to be politically correct because the Bible talks about the world system being against God and what the world regards in many cases, I'm not talking about the planet, not necessarily talking about the people in the world, but the systems, 
what the system regards as right, God regards as wrong. And at the end of the day, we're not going to be judged <clears throat> on CNN or Fox or uh, TMZ or anything else. We're going to be we're going to be judged by God. He is going to hold us accountable. It won't do any good to say, "Well, God, I was politically correct," because what God wants to know is, "Were you correct?" And so it's my responsibility. Here's the deal. You're going to answer to God for yourself. You're going to go one-on-one with God. I got to give two accounts. I, get a, I got to give an account for my own personal life, and I have to give an account for my 37 years here at New Spring nearly. So I want to make sure that when I stand before God, I don't stand before Jesus and Jesus look at me and say, Mark, you were a coward. You were a coward. You were afraid to tell the truth. And so I just want to tell you that before I get started. Today, I'm not really sure I'm going to get into that much biblical prophecy. I wanted to bring you a talk called The Big Picture. When I was a kid growing up, I would hear preachers talk about prophecy, and oftentimes they would get in the weeds and a whole lot of minutia that might titillate the audience, but at the end of the day, I never could really understand the big picture. So that's what I want to do today is to give you the big picture. Let's start with this. Only God knows the future. Only God knows the future. The future is his sole domain. No matter how smart humans get, the future is a closed book. I mean, many of us know smart people at the university, in media, uh, in government. We know smart people, but nobody knows what's going to happen five minutes from now. No human. It's a closed book. You know, you could be flat broke today, and you don't have to say amen to that, but (laughs) you could be flat broke today, and if you knew everything that was going to happen next week, you would be a millionaire by next Sunday. All you would need would be the stock quotes and the basketball scores. <laughs> and I shouldn't say this in church, but if basketball scores, you need a good bookie. <laughs> but I guess it wouldn't be gambling because you would know the future. You'd be a millionaire. But that's the stuff of movie fantasy because no human being knows the future. But on the other hand, the future is vitally important to, it, to us, isn't it? Because that's where we're headed. I mean, everything you have left is future. You can't go back and undo the past. So even though we can't know the future, the future is vitally important. So that leaves us with three ways to approach the future. (laughs) The first way is kind of like the postmodern American way, which is to say nobody knows the future, so consequently I'm just going to take it as it comes. Whatever happens, happens. But of course, that's a rather unprepared way to face the future, isn't it? The second way, and this is what probably most smart people in our culture do, they face the future with speculation. Now, speculation tends to be built on one of, or maybe all three, of these, of these uh, methods. One would be to speculate about the future based on present circumstances. This is what I see today when I look at the world, so therefore I project that the following is going to happen. But that's not a fail-safe way, is it? A lot of you remember 9-11 in 2001. What if you had projected what you thought was going to happen on September 10th? What if you projected the financial picture? What if you projected the political picture on, 2000 and, uh, on, the, on September 10th, 2011? Everything you would have predicted would have been wrong. I remember many years ago, I think this was like 1990, I sat on the board of directors for a Christian university. And they were going through the accreditation process. And the president of the college asked me if I would come in and meet with the accrediting body as we, as, as they were, we were shepherding through um, accreditation renewal. 
And I remember back in those days, it was common for entities, business entities and, and educational organizations to make certain projections before we looked at the future. And I remember that the, the essential projection was that there would be no wars for the next 10 years. And I remember sitting in that meeting, they said, well, that'll be easy, let's just project there'll be no wars for the next 10 years. It was only a few months later the Gulf War started, and consequently everything we projected in that meeting turned out to be wrong. So the first way that you can, uh, you can approach the future with speculation is to look at present circumstances. Well, there are some of us that I wouldn't put myself in this category, but you're very smart. And you, you're a student, especially those of you who are investing. And you would say, well, Mark, I not only look at present circumstances, I look at past patterns. How has the world behaved? How has the circumstance of the economy behaved with past patterns? And based on past patterns, I project that the following is going to happen. And here's another American 2022 method. We can base our speculation on expert opinions. Do you know how to define expert? Expert means you go 300 miles from home and carry a fancy leather briefcase. That's what makes you an expert. I, I, I try to be gracious, but I will tell you this. The next time I hear some media goofball say, they're going to tell me all I need to know about X, I'm going to be inclined to put my foot through the television. I want to tell them, you tell me what you have, I'll tell you when it's all I need to know. But that's how speculation is built. Present circumstances, past patterns, listening to the experts. There is a third way that I want to argue is far superior, and that is revelation. Now, I'm not talking about the book of Revelation. I'm talking about the very concept of revelation. In fact, the, the Greek word for revelation, actually there are two words, apo kaluma, which means well, apo means away, kaluma is the veil. It means to take away the veil. In Revelation, somebody who knows something tells somebody who doesn't know what they don't know so that they will know what they didn't know before the person who knew told them what to know. That's Revelation. And the good news is God does that. There's a beautiful verse, and I think I've used this with every Clash of Dynasty series. Isaiah 42, verse 8, God says, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to anyone else. Listen to this. Everything I prophesied has come true. And now I will prophesy again this sentence I love. I will tell you the future before it happens. That's amazing. Now, I was born at night. I really was. But not last night. And I know that someone is listening to me right now, and you're saying, okay, Mark, I get this. You know, I, I, you know, I saw this when I was at the university. Ancient book, ancient prophecies like Nostradamus. Have you ever read Nostradamus? I mean, really. I mean, a lot of people talk about Nostradamus. I bet very few people have actually read Nostradamus. You ever read one of his prophecies? They're the vaguest things you've ever seen in your life. You can make them say anything. Well, that's not what the Bible is like. So would you allow me for a few moments to maybe get into some, well, I don't know if you can call it weeds if it's the Bible, but let me just kind of like get off the trail and get into a little minutia, and I'm going to ask for your indulgence to really watch this. There was a prophet back in, in, the, in Judah in around the year 750 B.C., B.C., 750 B.C., and he was writing a prophecy. It's a long book. There are 66 chapters in your, in your Bible in the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah was writing one time, and I don't think Isaiah had the foggiest clue what he was writing. I think the Holy Spirit was just giving this to him by dictation. Now look, look at this. He said, when I say of Cyrus, that's a name. 
When I say of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, he'll do as I say, he will command, look at this, rebuild Jerusalem, file that away. He will say, restore the temple, file that away. This is what the Lord says to Cyrus, his anointed one, whose right hand he will empower. Now stay with me. That was written somewhere around 740 B.C. The only thing was, Jerusalem was not destroyed, and the temple was not destroyed. They would not be, Jerusalem would not be captured, and the temple destroyed until 586 B.C. So clearly when Isaiah wrote that, nobody was thinking about rebuilding the temple that they would never live to see destroyed. That would happen over 200 years later, that rebuilding in 536 B.C. Still with me? Let's get into a little bit more weeds. The country that Cyrus would be from was Persia. He was from the Persian Empire. Well, the thing about it was, when Isaiah wrote this, there really was no Persian Empire. The Assyrians were in control. The next world power would be the Babylonians. The Babylonians would be the one that would invade Judah and Jerusalem and destroy the temple. But the Persian Empire was the empire yet to come, which Cyrus was from. Now, look at this. Now, Ezra wrote this probably around 440 B.C., maybe even a little later, maybe a little closer to 400 B.C. He writes, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, the king of Persia, says, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem and Judah. Any one of his people, let him go to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord. Well, that's a serious prophecy. That's not a vagary. That's about as specific as it gets. And what we can understand is that Daniel came along in the 6th century B.C. He wrote about the world empires on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Well, Daniel not only worked for the Babylonians, he moved into the Persian Empire. He survived. He was one of the Magi. And he sat down with Cyrus and said, look, sir, here's your name. It's right here in the Bible. And God says, you're going to do this. And Cyrus said, okay, let's do it. Prophecy 200 years before. <laughs> this, this is free. When Harry Truman in 1948 went against his own State Department, he went against George Marshall, who was his hero, and he went against his entire UN contingent to recognize Israel as a nation. When Haim Wiseman, the Jewish contingent, came in to thank Harry Truman for the bold step that he did to recognize Israel, Truman, with tears streaming down his face, said, I am Cyrus. <laughs> what he meant was he was like Cyrus. By the way, happened again. Forgive me, just, do you mind a little history here? I, I apologize. I just, want, I, I just want to show you that God prophesies, he tells the future. Well, after the Persians came Alexander the Great and the Greeks. And Alexander the Great, he was going through the world like a hot knife through butter. If you see this on a map, he had gone through Tyre. He was headed down to Egypt. He would be going straight through Jerusalem. He was sieging and capturing all these cities, and he was mad at Jerusalem. And he was about to, I mean, he'd already, he'd already destroyed Tyre. He was coming up to Jerusalem, and God inspired one of the, the, the high priests to go out with other high priests. They didn't go out with an army. They went out with spiritual leaders, all dressed in white. And according to Flavius Josephus, what happened was, and this is in the year 332, what happened was really cool. They went out there to Alexander the Great and said, look, sir, Daniel wrote about you right here in the Bible. And Flavius Josephus said, that Alexander the Great left Jerusalem alone. In fact, he even blessed Jerusalem, went around, went straight to Egypt. I know this is ancient stuff, 
I just want you to know in our time frame that when God says everything I prophesied has come true and now I prophesy again, I will tell you the future before it happens. It matters. It matters in 2022. Next week, I'm going to talk about Russia because I get asked this question all the time. Is Russia in the Bible? Yes. I'm not sure the United States is. I think I could find it, but I'm not sure. But I'm sure Russia is. We'll talk about that next week. Let's start here. Because somebody could say, well, Mark, I'm not really sure. You talk about a lot of prophecies in the Bible. <clears throat> so, I mean, what are there, like four, five, six, ten? If you're holding a Bible in your lap or if you have an electronic device that has a Bible on it, here's what you need to understand. 27% of your Bible is prophecy. I mean, I've met Christians before. I, met, I have pastor friends who say, well, I don't get into prophecy much. Well, you're going to bypass a whole bunch of the Bible. Let's take this room. There are 333 prophecies about the coming of Jesus into our world. Two-thirds of them haven't been fulfilled yet. Now, you know, I talk about this every Christmas. There are prophecies about the coming of the Lord. I mean, we're told that he would be uh, a virgin born. We're told that he would be born in Bethlehem. Micah did that like 600 years before Jesus was born. Uh, we were told that he would be of the tribe of Judah. Mary Alice and I read in our devotions this morning in the book of Numbers, the coming of Jesus would be associated with a star. I mean, all these prophecies about Jesus' first coming, and yet two-thirds of the prophecies about Jesus have yet to be fulfilled. In fact, every one time in the Bible, the Bible refers to Jesus' coming. You ready for this? It refers to his next coming eight times. Eight times. So this is the big picture talk. So let's put everything together that we've talked about. So here we go. This is just kind of like a geometric proof. If God tells the future with specific information, and those prophecies come true with 100% accuracy, then the world we're living in is scripted. The world we're living in is scripted. The events of our times are scripted. So here's the thing. Let's just make this, I'm not going to really get into prophecy today. Let's just make this the introduction to our series for the rest of the message. If you were to boil all Bible prophecy down to the three most important facts, what would those facts be? Which, by the way, it's really critical that we understand the the key of prophecy. A lot of people get into the minutia and who's the Bible talking about here and when's this going to happen, all that kind of thing. The Bible tells us in the book of Revelation chapter 19 that the essence of prophecy is to give a clear witness for Jesus. So all prophecy is about Jesus. It's going to sooner or later, whatever happens, whoever's involved, it's going to get to the person of Jesus. So what's the big picture? What are the three facts that we need to know in the next 14 minutes or 19 minutes or... Whatever happens here. Okay, this first one's not going to be fun. But it's critical to understanding. Because a lot of you have heard about the Antichrist and the tribulation this last seven years and all the things that are going to happen in the world. Here's number one. Cultures can decline to the place where they're no longer sustainable. And that's the kind of thing I don't like to say. And I don't think you'll hear that in most churches today. And I'm not patting myself on the back because it's not fun for me to say but cultures can get to the point where they're no longer sustainable. Now, here's what I do know. I don't know if we're anywhere close to that. We could be right at the door. The culture we're in right now might not be sustainable. On the other hand, 
We could have another 100 years because when we study the history of the Bible and the history of the last 2,000 years, there have been times when cultures declined horribly, but then there would be something called revival. And what revival means is that God's people start behaving like God's people. I mean, here's the thing. If this culture is not redeemable, it's not because of those who don't know Jesus Christ. It's because of us not being what we should be as Christ followers. And so what would happen is sometimes just a few people begin to pray and ask God to change things, and there would be a revival. And here's the thing about revival. I'm, talking, I'm not talking about a church revival. I'm talking about a national revival or a cultural revival. It buys time. For instance, God had prophesied that the city of Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, would be destroyed. And he sent Jonah there and said, if you don't repent, I'm going to destroy Nineveh. What happened? Jonah went to Nineveh, preached repentance. The people turned. You know the story of the book of Jonah, many of you. What did it do? It bought 150 years. I mean, Nineveh was ultimately judged the way God said it was going to be judged, but they bought 150 years. But here's the point. There are times when there is such a moral and spiritual freefall that there's no turning back. There are two prime examples in the Bible. The first one is in Genesis chapter 6, because the Bible says the world was filled with wickedness and filled with violence. And God said, I am not going to let it go on any further. And you may remember the story how that there was one man in his family who found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and God worked out a rescue plan for them through an ark, but at that point, the world had reached the place culturally where it was no longer sustainable. Second illustration. There was a man named Lot and his family who lived in a place called Sodom. And God had said to Lot's uncle Abraham, who was a godly man, I'm going to destroy Sodom. And Abraham began to negotiate with God. And he said, God, if there are 50 righteous people, will you not destroy it? God said, okay, if you can find 50 righteous people, I won't destroy Sodom. Well, Abraham started negotiating. Well, what if you find 40? What if you find 30? What if you find 20? And finally, Abraham said, what if you find 10? And God said, I will not destroy Sodom if you will find 10 people. Why did Abraham stop there? Because he understood clearly, if there were not 10 righteous people in Sodom, it was a culture that was spiritually irredeemable. That's just a fact. Now, why do I think about this in the terms of the last days? I do because Jesus coached me to. Listen to Jesus. This is in Luke 17. Just as it was in the days of Noah. Well, we said that was a cultural, irredeemable culture. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. That means when Jesus comes back. It was the same in the days of Lot. The day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven, destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day when the Son of Man, Jesus, returns when he's revealed. Now, I don't know what you're asking, but I think here's what I'd be asking. Somebody is saying, Mark, are we there? Is the world as we know it, is America as we know it, are we to the place where there's no turning back? I pray for revival. I really do. I pray that God will give us many more years. And I think that's something that needs to be in the heart of every Christ follower. But I do know, I've read the back of the book, and I know from the book of Revelation so many other places in the Bible, I know the world will get to the place where there's no remedy. The Antichrist will come, the tribulation will happen, and God will wrap everything up. I know that's going to happen. But here's what I do know, and this is beautiful. Believers are always rescued before a culture is judged for being irredeemable. God got Noah out and his family. 
with an ark. Now, here's the thing. They're not always perfect. If I had been God, I think I would have let Noah's son, him, drown in the flood. You know, God got Lot and his daughters out. If I'd been God knowing what was going to happen with his daughters, I'm not sure I would have let them out. But they were believers. They were not perfect. They had all kinds of really heavy problems, but God rescued them before judgment. I mean, here's the thing. Noah and his family got in the ark before the first drop of rain fell, and Lot and his family got out of Sodom before the first sulfur and brimstone came down. Here's what I do know. I know there's a wickedness in our world that has never been before. It's so easy to say, well, things have always been like this. And I know if you're under 25, you might not know that there was once a very different world. Very, and, and not so long ago, just about a decade. In Finland, right now, there is a trial. In fact, the trial's over, we're waiting for the verdict. In, not North Korea, not China. In Finland, there is a trial of a Lutheran bishop and also for a woman who's a member of parliament. They're being tried as criminals for very gentle statements about biblical sexuality. I want you to hear what the BBC said, and I'm going to quote. The BBC said the court will have to decide whether citing the Bible can be considered a crime in some cases in Finland. In California, a dad, software engineer for Apple, who merely questioned his son's gender reassignment treatment. The judge stripped him of his parental rights to see him or speak to him. Of course, according to news reports, the judge failed to disclose she has a transgender child. But the dad is being billed $200,000 for the treatment. Closer to home. In Missouri, there's a lady who is... Congresswoman right now, she's running for the U.S. Senate. She posted this simple statement. Women's sports are for women, not men who pretend to be women. That's a pretty simple statement. Ten years ago, just about everybody would have said that. But now her media, social media account suspended her for violating the platforms. I want you to listen to this. Hateful conduct standard. I'm going to be level with you today. The word of God says this, judgment upon those who call right wrong and wrong right. Just 10 years ago, any of these stories would have been shocking, but they're the norm today, and it's global. It's one of the things that troubles me. I pray for revival, and I know God can do anything. But it's one of the things that troubles me because when I look at the biblical pattern, I understand that we could be in a culture that is irredeemable. Here's fact number two. The key to understanding all prophecy, and this is really the key to understanding what I've just talked about today, is that prophecy has to do with a cosmic clash of dynasties. It's going to be like fire hose for a few moments, but if you look at the story of the Bible... The Bible tells us how that there was rebellion in heaven before the world was ever created. Long before there was a world, God had created angels. And his most beautiful angel, Lucifer, he got a little full of himself. And he decided that he could be just like God. And so he rebelled against God. But he didn't stop there. He, in, he, he, he stirred up a third of the angels, Revelation tells us, Revelation 12. 
He stirred up a third of the angels, and there was a rebellion in heaven. Now, it did not bother God a whole lot. He just thumped them out. But Satan, of course, Lucifer, as we know as Satan, and, and those angels we know as demons. We'll talk about that sometime. And then God made a world and put humans here. Now, here's the deal, and this is what must be understood. We're caught in the crossfire. We're caught in the crossfire between these two dynasties. God loves you. Satan hates God. Satan hates everything God loves. Ergo, he hates you. So consequently, there is a clash of dynasties. Satan wrecked this world because he swindled our first parents out of their kingdom authority. But God redeemed it. God redeemed the culture by sending Jesus Christ into the world to live the life, I mean, to, to fix what was broken. He lived the life that you and I can't live. What would it take to get into heaven? Perfection. I can't be perfect for 30 minutes. But Jesus came and he ran the table and he lived that perfect life I can't live. And then after living that perfect life, he laid down on a cross and the way God saw it, he paid for everything that you and I have ever done or ever will do wrong. You say, Mark, you mean God you mean Jesus paid for the sins I will commit in the future? All your sins were future when Jesus died. And so for thousands of years, there's been a war between those two dynasties. Somebody could say, well, Mark, I don't understand. If Jesus won when he came out of the grave, why do we still have this clash? Well... If God had wrapped this thing up thousands of years ago, what about you? You wouldn't have been born yet. God loves you. And he wants you to be his daughter. He wants you to be his son. And if God had ended this thing, you, you wouldn't have had a chance to be saved. So God loves you. And he had, he, had, he had to let things play out. And that's what's happening now. Here's one of the most important things I'll ever tell you. Because I've talked to people before and I've asked them, have you accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? And I've had people tell me, oh, I've always known Jesus all my life. That is an impossibility. Because we, because we are sinners, we are auto-enrolled in Satan's kingdom. That's why Jesus would say the gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction and there are many that go in thereat. But I want you to understand this. God does not want anybody in hell. Listen to these words. The Lord isn't slow about keeping his promises as some people think he is. In fact, God is patient because he wants everyone to turn from sin and no one to be lost. That is why Jesus had to come. And if you've ever received Jesus as your Savior, if you've ever invited Jesus Christ to come in your life, Something beautiful has happened to you, and you might not have known it when it happened, but let me read it to you, and all you New Springers know this is one of my favorite verses. Listen to this. For he has rescued you from the kingdom. Read that dynasty. He has rescued you from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom, the dynasty of his dear son who purchased our forgiveness, our freedom, and forgave us our sins. See, we weren't transferred into the kingdom because we got good enough. We were transferred into the kingdom because we were rescued from the kingdom of darkness and God forgave our sins that made us holy and pure in his sight. Well, we're in that clash of dynasties in 2022 and we feel it. It's hotter than ever. But I want you to understand something. And for anybody here who's got an attitude against Christ or I want you to know this clash has got a shelf life. And it's about to expire. We'll talk about the signs in the next few weeks, but to close out today, I want to look at the third most important fact 
of Bible prophecy. For those who know Jesus, we are not headed for the tribulation. We are headed for the Easter prophecy. And we're going to be talking about that. In fact, we'll even talk about it through Easter. What is the Easter prophecy? Because you probably have seen the promos for our series. What is the Easter prophecy? Well, when you go back to the time when Jesus died, and then after he rose again, there's a couple of comments about Jesus that are the prophecy, that's the prophecy that's most salient to us today. This is the night of Jesus' arrest. His disciples are freaking out. He said, if I go and prepare a place for you, ready? Here it is. I will come back and take you to be with me. Oh, listen to that. That's, this is Jesus. This is the Son of God. This is the one who caused blind people to see, people uh, who couldn't hear to be able to hear, people that were paralyzed to be able to walk again. This is a person that caused dead people to come back to life again. But Jesus said, I'm coming back. Now, we see another version of this Easter prophecy on the day when Jesus ascended into heaven and he left. Read this with me. Well, the disciples watched Jesus ascend, and they kind of stood there looking up at the sky, expecting something to happen. An angel said this, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. <clears throat> now, folks, I want to tell you, I've studied this. I'm, I'm not young anymore. I started preaching when I was 16. And I remember I used to preach a lot of student meetings, a lot of youth meetings, and a lot of kids in those days would ask me questions because I was the same age they were. They were asking me questions about the coming of the Lord. I've been watching this all my life. And I want to tell you, it's like I told you the last time I did a series on this. We are so close. I remember I told you, I said, it's like landing at Eisenhower. When you get to that place where you're crossing Kellogg and you can recognize the buildings. That's what I feel like. I feel like when I see the signs of the times, like I can recognize the buildings. What's going to happen when Jesus comes? Well, there are two scriptures that I want to give you, and the first one is in 1 Corinthians 15. That's a wonderful chapter. It's on resurrection, what happens when we die. So Paul writes, let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. The word secret there comes the Greek word mysterion. We get a word mystery from it, not like Agatha Christie or Tom Clancy, but it means something that you would not know if God didn't tell you. Let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment in the blink of an eye. The word moment there comes from the Greek word atomos. Those of you who study science, you know what, to, what, that, what, we, what we get. We get the word atom from that. Tomos is the Greek word for time. The negative prefix a means, well, what it really means, in a unit of time so small it can't be divided. When I was a kid, I have severe acrophobia. And I used to listen to preachers, and they talk about when Jesus comes, we're going to feet are going to go up off the ground, and we're going to float up through the sky, and then we'll float up in the air. And I thought, I don't think I'll survive the rapture. <laughs> no, 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 no. It doesn't happen like that. And in a tomas, I mean, a second can be divided. We know about milliseconds. And in a tomas, you're here, you're there. That's what happened. Let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment. I told us in the blink of an eye, for when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever, and we who are living also will be transformed. Let me give you what the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians about the same event. The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God. First, the Christians who have died will rise from their graves. Then together with them, look at this next phrase, we who are still alive... Do you realize that when Jesus comes, I mean, some of you have paid mortuaries. 
you prepaid. You're going to lose that money. I have some of my best friends who are in the mortuary business. They all love the Lord. It's not going to do them any good either. (laughs) They're, They're going to be with us. Then together with them, we are still alive and remain on the earth. We'll be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. Those are the three facts. So where does that leave us? I want to talk to those of you who have already accepted Jesus. And you're caught in this crossfire. I see Christians today who are folding like cheap suits. When the pressure is on to capitulate to the kingdom of Antichrist that's already in in motion, he's not here yet. But when the pressure is on to capitulate, I see people who claim to know Jesus folding like cheap suits. In fact, the quintessential sign of the end times is that people won't stand where they used to stand. Listen to what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, which comes right after the text I just read to you. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know your labor in the Lord is not in vain. I don't know about you, but I want to be standing in the right place when Jesus comes back. I do not want to hear Jesus say, Mark, you are a coward. You could not stand for me. You could not stand for my truth. You were so worried about being popular with the culture that was perhaps coming to the place of being irredeemable. You were a coward. I don't want to hear that. May God help us to have the guts of Esther, the courage of Esther who said, if I perish, I perish. We need women who are warriors like Esther. We need men who will be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that said, our God will deliver us. But if not, we want you to know we will not bow. If you're a Christ follower, do you have it in you? Can you stand? If you haven't accepted Jesus yet, get your transfer. I'm out of time. I, I told the story here before. I'll tell it again sometime. But I'll tell it real quick, real, real quick. <laughs> I, when I was in sixth grade in my school in Fort Worth, we still had elementary. I was still in elementary school before we had middle school. And I was used to taking a lot of standardized tests. So we had a standardized test. It wasn't an Iowa test of basic skills. It was just a standardized test. And I didn't know what it was, but I loved to read. And I was reading a book at the time I was really interested in, and our teacher had said that um, if you got through with the test, you could read a book. And it was one of those, you know, tests where you just fill in the circles. I wanted to read the book. So I just filled in the circles at random. I did not know that these tests were to place you in classes in junior high school because they had classes that were accelerated as a year ahead. Those are classes of honors classes. That's for the really smart kids that weren't quite in accelerated. And there were the, all the regular classes and there were remedial classes. So I go over to junior high school. I'm in the lowest <laughs> level of classes. So we get into discussions and I'd answer questions. And, and so uh, it wasn't long before 
teacher would say, there's got to be some kind of problem here. So without, I didn't even know what was happening at the time. Teacher would say, uh, Mark, would you come up here and get your attendance card? You need to report to this class. You need to, so I'd move to the next class. And then they'd, I'd interact a little bit, and the teacher would say, uh, Mark, would you come up here and get your attendance card? You need to move to this class. I went all the way from remedial to accelerated <laughs> in all these classes, and I got a chance to look at them all. Listen, every time I look at that verse I told you I love so much, it is like the Holy Spirit is saying, come get your attendance card. You don't belong here. You belong in the kingdom of my dear son. You come get your attendance card and you report to Jesus Christ. And you tell him that you want him to be your savior and your king. And when that happens, he washes your sins away and he adopts you into his family and you will be his forever. See, I was auto-enrolled in the wrong classes, and it was because I did wrong. That works too, doesn't it? <laughs> but God loves you so much. Oh, if you just knew how much God loves you. You say, well, Mark, for me to believe that God loves me, he has to agree with all my positions. Well, you're putting him in an impossible place. That's not how love works. That's how intimidation works. That's how control works. Love means... God loves me enough to tell me the truth, and that truth is Jesus. Let's, would you bow your head with me, please? If you pray, if you want to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, and you say, Mark, I want to know for sure that I'm in God's kingdom, then I want you to pray a prayer with me because the Bible just says ask, and I'm going to pray a prayer that asks. Pray with me. Dear Lord, I know I'm a sinner, but I believe you love me very much. I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe he arose from the grave. And since Jesus is alive, I want him to be my savior and my king. Transfer me today. Thank you for hearing my prayer in Jesus' name. Hey, if you just pray with me, I have a gift that I'd love to give you before you leave. No strings attached. It's got a New Spring Bible like I preached for a minute. It's also got a book I wrote. You say, Mark, I got a lot of questions. Well, I wrote a little book called My New Walk with God that answers a lot of questions. All you have to do is go to any info center and just say, I prayed with Mark. They won't hassle you or stalk you. They just want to give it to you. Thanks for being here. We'll get this, up, get this going next week. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in Wichita, the surrounding area, we'd love for you to engage with us in one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our incredible kids and student environments, visit us at newspring.org. One more time, newspring.org.